Oh God, we sing our hope, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Now set that hope ablaze and send us into this dark world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated, please. On this Easter Sabbath, two stories and a commentary. Story number one, Russell Baker, syndicated and Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, New York Times. Stories from his memoir entitled, Growing Up. Five-year-old Russell, his daddy is sick, sicker than the little boy realizes, by the way. Here we go. It was a gentle pastel Indian summer morning, warm and sweet. I wandered around the backyard until the sun burned off the frost, and after a while, my mother came out. The doctor's here, she said. He's going to take Daddy to the hospital in Frederick so he can get better, come and kiss him goodbye. To my surprise, my father was fully dressed and seated in the doctor's small roadster at the front of the house. I walked across the lawn to the car, and he leaned out the window and smiled. But he didn't have much to say to me. Just, Daddy will be home in a day or two. Be a good boy till I get back. My mother held me up and he gave me a kiss. We'd better be going, the doctor said. My mother set me down, leaned into the car and kissed him. She and I watched the roadster together until it passed over the brow of the hill headed for the Maryland side of the Potomac. The next day, I set off on one of my daily wandering expeditions taking the road toward the creek. I was down there by myself. You could always find something entertaining to do around Morrisonville, climb a fence, take a stick, scratch pictures in the dirt. There were always cows around or a horse, throw pebbles at a locust tree. I was busy at this sort of thing when I saw my second cousins, Kenneth and Ruth Lee, coming down the road. Besides Doris and Audrey, my sisters and me, they were the only children living in Morrisonville. Kenneth, two years older than I, was our leader. He was coming down the road with Ruth Lee following as usual. I was happy to see them. We usually played in the fields and around the barns and straw ricks together, and I was glad now to have company. And Kenneth walked right up to me, though. He stared at me with such a stare as I had never seen. Your father's dead, he said. It was like an accusation that my father had done something vile and criminal, and I came to my father's defense. He is not, I said. But, of course, they didn't know the situation. I started to explain. He was sick in the hospital. My mother was bringing him home right now. He's dead, Kenneth said. His assurance slid an icicle into my heart. He's not either, I shouted. He, he is too, Ruth Lee said, and they want you to come home right away. I started running up the road screaming, he is not... It was a weak argument. They had the evidence and gave it to me as I hurried home crying, He is not! He is not! He is not! I was almost certain before I got there that he was. And I was right. Arriving at the hospital that morning, my mother was told he had died at 4 a.m. in acute diabetic coma. He was 33 years old. When I came running home, my mother was still not back from Frederick, but the women had descended on our houses. Women there did in such times and were already busy with the ritual house cleaning and cooking that was Morrison's instinctual response to death. 
With a thousand tasks to do, they had no time to handle a howling five-year-old. I was sent to the opposite end of town to Bessie Scott's house. Poor Bessie Scott. All afternoon, she listened patiently as a saint while I sat in her kitchen and cried myself out. For the first time, I thought seriously about God. Between sobs, I told Bessie that if God could do things like this to people, then God was hateful, and I had no more use for Him. Bessie told me about the peace of heaven and the joy of being among the angels and the happiness of my father who was already there. This argument failed to quiet my rage. God loves us all like His own children, Bessie said. Well, if God loves me, why did He make my father die? Bessie said I would understand someday, but she was only partly right. That afternoon, though I couldn't have phrased it this way then, I decided God was a lot less interested in people than anybody in Morrisonville was willing to admit. That day, I decided God was not entirely to be trusted. After all, after that, I never cried again with any real conviction, nor expected much of anyone's God except indifference, nor loved deeply without fearing it would cost me dearly in pain. At the age of five, I had become a skeptic and began to sense that any happiness coming my way might be the prelude to some grim cosmic joke. Sad, isn't it? Makes you wonder how many of us have been living for years with an abandoned hope born out of a broken heart chasing hope from an empty tomb, a new season. But what hope is there? Story number two. Let's go to it. The Gospel of Mark, the dramatic, terse Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16, the last page of the Gospel. Mark 16. Story number two. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Who will roll the stone away? Maybe that was the haunting question that we heard over and over again this week through the din and the dust and the, the, the smoke and the flame, the fury of another city, yet another city added to the roll call of terrorist targets. Poor Brussels, Belgium, who will roll the stone away? Who will deliver us from this death? Verse 2 again, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Wasn't that what the little five-year-old Russell was screaming into that afternoon air. 
As he cried all the way home, he is not, he is not, he is not. I want you to see Russell's words, written as an adult, celebrated writer. Put them on the screen for you. I just read them to you. That afternoon, though I couldn't have phrased it this way then, I decided God was a lot less interested in people than anybody in Morrisonville was willing to admit. That day, I decided God was not entirely to be trusted. After that, I never cried again with any real conviction, nor expected much of anyone's God except indifference, nor loved deeply without fearing it would cost me dearly in pain. At the age of five, I had become a skeptic. Began to sense that any happiness coming my way might be the prelude to some grim cosmic joke. And by the way, not even the brightest minds on earth have figured it out. In the March issue this year of the New Republic magazine, literary critic William Giraldi ravingly reviews Katie Royf's new book on death. She entitled the book. The Violet Hour, The Violet Hour, a phrase borrowed from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Let me read just a piece of his review of her book. Geraldi writing, a writer's dying because she's going to study five dying authors. A, a writer's dying can seem the coda to his work since one definition of the poet and novelist is or should be someone who's been preparing to die all along, someone whose imaginative life is usurped by the inevitability of our flesh and the consequences that inevitability has for the spirit. He goes on, in the violet hour, Katie Roy delivers a composite of daring beauty on the deaths of Susan Sontag, Sigmund Freud, John Updike, Dylan Thomas, and Maurice Sendak. In the slow fade of her five riders, cancer came for Sontag, Freud, and Updike. A stroke failed Sendak. Thomas decimated himself exuberantly with drink. Roy finds, and now he quotes her book, she finds glimpses of bravery as they're dying, of beauty, of, ter of truly terrible behavior, of creative bursts, of superb devotion, of glitteringly accurate self-knowledge, and of magnificent delusion. I think if I can capture death on the page, she writes, I'll repair or heal something. I'll feel better. It comes down to that. But does it really? Does it come down to that? You capture death on a page and that settles it? But maybe we... Couldn't capture death anywhere else anyway, but on a page. Story number two continues. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But, verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. I found a cheerful little poem written by the 19th century English poet John Clare. Cheery piece. Quietly builds to the last line that ends, by the way, with a question mark. I want to read it to you. If you're like me, when somebody reads poetry and I can't see the words, I mean, it's just, I, I just can't quite get it. And so I want you to see what you're hearing. Reach into your worship bulletin, your Easter bulletin. The study guide is there, which is a collection of the quotes 
in this teaching. Pull, the, pull, pull it out. Right there at the top, you see John Clare's poem, title of his poem, The Instinct of Hope. You see it there? So you'll hear it, and now you'll read it at the same time. I'm not putting it on the screen. Okay? The Instinct of Hope. Is there another world for this frail dust to warm with life and be itself again? Something about me daily speaks there must. And why should instinct nourish hopes in vain? Tis nature's prophecy that such will be, and everything seems struggling to explain the closed, sealed volume of its mystery. Time wandering onward keeps its usual pace as seeming anxious of eternity to meet that calm and find a resting place. Even the small violet feels a future power and waits each year renewing blooms to bring. And surely man is no inferior flower to die unworthy of a second spring. Is he? Is she? I'm going to read those last four lines again. Even the small violet feels a future power and waits each year renewing blossoms to bring, and surely man is no inferior flower to die unworthy of a second spring. And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been removed. What is this second spring of which the, the poet speaks? Maybe only in the dank, the dark, chilled air of a sepulcher, we can know the truth. Verse 4 again, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What a conflicted ending to this dramatic gospel. Manuscripts indicate this is probably the actual ending. Conflicted in the end. Because every reader who will read this story lives in a conflicted world where hope and fear and faith and doubt are mixed in a, in a terrible embrace. Wow. Chasing hope. I mean, what else can you do with hope but chase it? Chasing hope. A new series for a new season. Because the fact is, this fall, there'll be something called Hope Trending, a crash course on how to live without fear. You look at the cover of the bulletin, it says 29 weeks and counting away. So before hope trending, why not chasing hope this season that precedes it? What else can we do with hope but chase it? The Apostle Peter, there's a line he writes, and we go to it. And the reason we can go to it is because, as you know, many scholars believe that Peter himself, the big fisherman Peter, he was the personal mentor and father figure for young John Mark. You remember John Mark, who Paul took under his wing, this intrepid missionary Paul on that missionary team, but 
Paul sent the boy packing halfway in because Paul apparently didn't brook crybabies and sissies on such major missions as this. And so, shamed, John Mark returns to Jerusalem where his mother lives. But the wise fisherman saw a diamond in the rough. He put his arms around that boy. Scholars tell us that, in fact, the gospel of Mark is really the gospel according to Peter. Because did you notice only in the gospel of Mark, the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. You can bet Peter hung on to that one word of hope for a long, long time. So we've heard Peter's recitation of the resurrection, and now we go to Peter. Come on, let's go. First Peter. He only wrote two little letters in, in the New Testament. This is the commentary to the two stories. Here it comes. First Peter chapter 1, near the end of your Bible. First Peter chapter 1. Let's go. We go to this line because, as it turns out, the resurrection of Jesus Christ turns out to be the tour de force of the gospel proclamation in the New Testament. It is the quintessence of the gospel. Watch. All right, 1 Peter 1. Oh, let's just begin the letter where most letters begin at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to John's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That would be Turkey, Asia Minor today who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Good night. We've got the whole trinity here. And they've been chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Now notice the next line. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And I love that line. We haven't even gotten it. We're chasing hope, but we've run into grace and peace on the way. Let it be in abundance. Let it be for you in abundance. And why wouldn't it be in abundance when you have the entire Trinity on your side? Did you, did you get what we just read? God the Father, who is He? God the Father is the one who, with prescient foreknowledge, picked you out before you were in your mother's tummy. He said, I want that girl to be born. I want that boy to be born. And by the way, if you're alive today, you are alive because of the foreknowledge of the God of this universe. I don't care who your mommy was, and I don't care what your daddy did. The fact is you're alive today because there is a divine being who chose you before you were born and said, I want you, girl. I want you, boy. You're going to follow me for the rest of your life. But it's not just God the Father. You have God the Spirit. What, is it, what does the Spirit do? He does this sanctifying work. And what is that? Espiritu Santo, as I've been learning to say in Spanish in um, Cuba. What does sanctifying mean? It means the Spirit has reached into your life. Get this. He has pulled you out of the pack. He's pulled you out of the crowd. He's separated you from the gang. You're no longer a part of them. Boy, you stay right here with me. You and me, you belong to me, girl. You stay here with me. I have separated you for me. That's what sanctifying means. And then you have Jesus with the code language of Calvary sprinkled with His blood. It's because of Jesus that the Good Friday is good. The entire Trinity is on our side. What's not to like about that this Easter? No wonder grace and peace be yours in abundance. Rest in God. Oh, but you were chasing hope. That's right, Peter says. You're chasing hope. Let's go. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope, not a dead hope, not a half-baked hope, a living hope 
a vibrant, pulsating, breathing, living hope. I have given you a living hope. You hold on to that hope. And how is it given it to us? Ah, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Good Friday is not enough. Not if your God is He is. Good Friday, yes. Oh, Good Friday was eternal love's sacrificial death for the entire human race from beginning to end. Oh, yes, without Good Friday, we would not even be here today. But the death of Good Friday means nothing without the resurrection of Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is the divine seal of approval on this tour de force, the atonement ratified, sealed, and never to be broken. Only when God arose was the seal affixed. What was declared by faith finished on Friday really got finished on Sunday. Wow. That's why the New Testament is just, it just repeats and repeats and repeats. No Easter Sunday, there is no Good Friday. Which, by the way, is precisely Paul's point. Paul, a buddy of Peter's. They didn't always see eye to eye, but they were friends. Paul, who, is, who has heard about a toxic rumor that is filtering through this newly planted church in Corinth, a, a deadly rumor that suggests, you know what, all this resurrecting dead body stuff is a bunch of bunk intellectually and experientially. It's just bunk. And Paul jumps, thunders to his literary feet. And I need you to see what he actually writes. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter of the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul deals with this rumor. Snap it out of the... Snap it in the bud. Here we go. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you be saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? I don't understand this, folks. Think of the logic now. Let me run some logic by you, Paul is writing. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Because apparently some are saying, well, Jesus might have... Jesus raised, okay, but not us. He was a God. We're not. No, Paul says, rubbish. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless... And so is your faith. More than that, we, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But if He did not, but He did not raise Him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, verse 16, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ, verse 17, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And oh, by the way, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, read, died, are lost, verse 19. Therefore, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You can't have the gospel without the resurrection. You can't have Good Friday without Easter Sunday. That's the point. Otherwise, we might as well believe the anthropologist. What's his name? Ernest Becker. What did he suggest? I'll put his words on the screen for you. The soberest conclusion, bright mind now, the soberest conclusion that we could make about what has been taking place on the planet for about three billion years is that it is being turned into a vast pit of fertilizer, end quote. How would you like that to be the end of your story? And he became fertilizer. 
If there is no resurrection, you might as well believe with Becker. And Baker, whom we read at the beginning. Grim cosmic joke. Hmm. That's why Peter can write with such bold confidence as he does. Now back to where your finger is. Verse 3 again. Praise be, Peter writes, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chasing hope from an empty tomb. I repeat, the New Testament is absolutely unequivocal in declaring that Christ's resurrection is the divine seal on the efficacy of His atoning death. No resurrection, no atonement, period. And thus it is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus that ignites our hopes. You want to chase hope? You, you run through an empty tomb. Let me put uh, Eugene Peterson's rendition of this. I love this. This is from The Message. I put it on the screen for you. What a God we have, he translates. 1 Peter 3, 1 verse 3. And how fortunate we are to have Him, this Father of our Master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. Don't you worry. The day, capital D, is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole, end quote. Did you catch that? And the future begins now, starts right now. Because in the New Testament, the future breaks into the present, and we live the future in the present. And that's why we have hope. That is precisely why we have hope. And the future starts now. No matter how dark today is, no matter how wretched your heart feels now, we have hope for tomorrow. We have hope now for tomorrow. I want to end by reading you a thoughtful essay written by Lewis Smedes, ethicist, theologian, taught at Fuller for years. I had the privilege of interviewing him, delightful interviewer, interviewee, by the way, uh, on our program, The Evidence. In his, this is in his book, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? I want to end with this. Just read it to you. Here it is. Oh, so here he goes. I bought a brand new date book yesterday. You remember those things, date books? It's all on the phone now, but you remember the date books. I brought a brand new date book yesterday, the kind I use every year, spiral bound, black imitation leather covers wrapped around pages and pages of blank squares. Each square has a number to tell me which day of the month I'm in at the moment. Each square is a frame for one episode of my life. Before I'm through with the book, I will fill the squares with classes I will teach, people I will eat lunch with, and everlasting committee meetings I will sit through. And some of you can identify with that. And these are only the things I cannot afford to forget. I fill the squares, too, with things I do not write down for me to remember. Thousands of cups of beverage, some lovemaking, some praying, and I hope gestures of help to my neighbors. Whatever I do, it has to fit inside one of these squares on my date book. I live one square at a time. The four lines that make that square are the walls of time that organize my life. Everything I do has to fit in one square. I cannot straddle the lines. Each square has an invisible door that leads to the next square. 
At a silent stroke, the door opens, and I am pulled through as if by a magnet, sucked into the next square in line. There I will again feel the time frame that seals me, feel, feel it with my busyness just as I did the square before. As I get older, the squares seem to get smaller. Hmm. One day I will walk into a square that has no door. There will be no mysterious opening and no walking into an adjoining square. One of the squares will be terminal. I do not know which square it will be. Everybody here, one square without a door. A life insurance person can roughly guess the squares I may expect before I get to the last one. Some of you math majors are going to end up with acu- uh, what is it? What were they called? actuarial, uh, you know, these charts. Figured out how long you're going to really live. How many do I have left? How many squares do I have left? Suppose, okay, for the sake of illustration, suppose I have exactly 1,029 squares left. What difference would it make to me now as I fill up this square, the only one that holds me today? Ah, the difference depends not so much on how many squares are left, but on what really is going to happen to me when I get to that final square. By the way, he was taking down his lights after Christmas, hanging along the eaves of his house in California, when he slipped on a ladder and died. That was the last square. 1,029? I don't know. Maybe you have 10,029. Maybe you have 29. We don't know. Now, when I get to that final square, what is really going to happen? Two things can happen. Here we go. Which of the two does happen tells pretty much what life is and what our world is all about. So we ought to face the two possibilities with utter honesty. This is no time for make-believe. Here's the first possibility. It's that when I walk into the last square, the one with no door, I will be suffocated inside of it. The walls of the square may close in on me as it were to choke me. All my yesterdays may have only vomited me into this dark room with no exit. I may have strutted my petty pace through each day only to be seduced into this blank square that silences my sounds forever. I have pretended in all those squares to be somebody special. Now I may share my bed with dead rats. This could be what happens to me 1,029 squares from now. And if it happens to me, it likely happens to everybody whenever he or she slides into the final square of that date book. Now, the second possibility is that when I walk into the last square, I will discover that the reason it has no door is that it has no walls for a door to fit into. The four unmovable lines that seal me inside all my other frames are erased. The last day of my life turns out to be the beginning of life in new dimensions, free somehow because the walls of regulated time have fallen away. The last square is not death. It is a new dimension of life. And everything inside of us is going, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. That's, that's not the way it goes. Oh, yes, it is, as he will point out. He'll make it right. You'll be surprised what he believes. It's coming. The Christian gospel comes down to a promise that the second possibility is the real one. Our last square is an introduction into a new expansive world of perfect peace and total justice. When we believe the promise, we have what is called the Christian hope. 
Now the last words, I'm going to put them on the screen for you. Here he goes. We may as well be very candid. Christian hope is fixed on the last square of our date book. Hope bets that the last square is not that closed closet commonly called a coffin or a casket, but a front door into a new world where everything is right, right in all dimensions. Look, I agree. There will be an intermission. I see. There will be an intermission, of course, between my arrival at my own private last square and the arrival of the new world, but I will not feel as if I need to wait for it to come. In fact, when I find myself in the new earth, I will feel as if I got there at the moment I left the last square of my calendar. It may be light years away, but in the new dimension, it will seem like tomorrow. Because of Jesus' resurrection, guess what? This is death. Eyes closed, eyes open. You sleep. There is no passage of time. Death will feel a half a second long. Eyes closed, eyes open. Maybe light years have gone by. Doesn't matter. Eyes closed, eyes open. He has borne us anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the future starts right now. Amen. The Brazilian philosopher Ruben Alves once wrote, Hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to it. Because the future starts right now. Let us pray. Oh, God, don't let us lose this truth. We will chase hope throughout our lives just to know that in Christ Jesus, the future is now, and death is shattered, and hope rules forever and ever. Seal it in our hearts and give us a new reason to chase hope this new season. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.